Please listen carefully. This is the Seriously Entertaining Podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Brought to you live every month from House of Speakeasy. We are your hosts. I'm Amanda Foreman. And I'm Lucas Whitman. At every one of our shows, storytellers riff on a theme. In this episode, speakers tiptoe near the brink, taking on the razor's edge. The poet Elizabeth Alexander explains the importance of speaking truth through even the most trying times. James Rebanks, a memoirist and shepherd from northern England, talks about the danger of losing touch with the land. We begin the hour with a novelist, Madeleine Chien, who considers the fine line between freedom and silence. The idea of the razor's edge has been in my mind these last few days. Who or what walks the razor's edge? What does it mean for a person or an idea or a thought or a piece of music to be considered dangerous? And to whom or to what does she or he or it pose a threat? Here's an example. In the 1960s, a new campaign began, the Cultural Revolution, and it overturned China. The campaign was a call to arms, especially to the young and to university students, to seize back the revolution. The revolution is not a dinner party, Mao Zedong famously said. It is not writing an essay, or painting a picture, or doing embroidery. It cannot be so refined, so leisurely, so gentle, so temperate, kind, courteous, restrained, or magnanimous. A revolution is an insurrection, an act of violence by which one class overthrows another. The wheel of history was turning, according to Mao, and old ideas, old thoughts, old customs, they carried a value system that was invisible, and this value system would always enshrine the upper class. Therefore, those old arts were an obstacle to China's future. There are so many ways to reimagine the world, and I think the lasting question that I have is, in the making of a new world and a new beginning, in trying to counteract the hierarchies and the violence within ourselves, who will pay the cost? And at what point does the cost become too high? And who will decide? From the French Revolution to the 1989 Tiananmen demonstrations, from the Cultural Revolution to the Arab Spring, there is no clear path to the destination that we imagine. On the contrary, the way is dangerous. The way is the razor's edge. And further, that thing that we desire with all our hearts, the just society, we do not know if it can live anywhere except in our imaginations. When the Cultural Revolution was at its height, 36 million people were targeted. Hundreds of thousands were driven to their deaths, many by suicide. In 1968, the Shanghai Revolutionary Committee decided to target one individual to hold him up as the emblem of all the kinds of thinking that were no longer permissible. This person was a man named Herluting. He was a composer. He was the president of the Shanghai Conservatory of Music, and he was 65 years old. They pulled Herluting up on stage. 
they surrounded him with television cameras. His arms were tied behind his back, his head was pushed down, and behind him in a line were his family, including his children and grandchildren who were made to witness what would happen. He faced a shouting, terrifying mob and a phalanx of red guards. One accusation after another was hurtled at him. They said he was corrupt, counter-revolutionary, a demon, a snake, an enemy of the people. Herluting did not bow his head. I am not guilty, he said. They continued to insult him. They beat him until he fell down. He stood up. He said, your accusations are false. They beat him again. He stood up again. And this time he shouted, shame, shame on you, shame, shame on you for lying. The television broadcast was cut. It had ended an unexpected failure for the Communist Party. This is a confrontation I first read about many years ago and I've never been able to get it out of my mind. I keep wondering how Herluting found the courage and why wasn't he afraid of the mob, the Red Guards, pain, and most of all, death. The force of the mob is like a hurricane and nothing is meant to withstand it. Nearly 30 years later, up to a million people would fill the streets around Tiananmen Square, and the students would occupy the space for almost six weeks. There were many banners around, but one of the banners had a huge resonance with the past, and that banner said, we are not a mob, we are the civilized members of society. Despite the 60 million deaths suffered by the previous generation, people were still shocked when the tanks turned against the people and the military turned against the students. The faith in better days is born again and again and again, and it is relentless. The idea of the razor's edge brought to mind many questions including this one. What is the line between civic duty and responsibility to one another? And the right, even the necessity, to reimagine a better world. Every day in all our decisions and in all our interactions, we walk the razor's edge between sound and silence, between choosing to protest and needing to listen. The writer Paul Beatty says, Silence can be either protest or consent, but most of the time, it is fear. So often, I'm afraid. I think of myself as a listener, and maybe the most difficult part of writing for me, even now, is listening to my own voice and believing in my right to speak. The writer Hajin asks, to whom, as whom, and in whose interest do we write? This has been my lifelong question, how to speak and how to listen, when to know which words will harm and which will allow us to live in the way that we must. The gift of being a writer has been the gift of being part of the house of literature, a noisy, living, complex house full of sorrow and joy in which we encounter in our brief time so many ways of living. Thank you.
Let's hear it for Madeline Jim. You've been listening to House of Speakeasy's seriously entertaining podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Now, let's get back to the show. So we have two more speakers for you here tonight. First up is Elizabeth Alexander, a memoirist, poet, essayist, playwright. You may recognize her in 2009. She composed and delivered Praise Song for the Day for President Barack Obama's first inauguration. And she's written a book of poems, American Sublime, which is a finalist for the Pulitzer. And most recently, she's written a, a devastatingly beautiful memoir, The Light of the World. Elizabeth has said, I was very interested to find that the way I really knew how I felt, and not just how I felt, but what was happening was to write it down, and that the process of writing is a process of living. Elizabeth Alexander. Um, so my father still says to me, always speak up, always use your voice, don't swallow your voice, don't sit on your words, you never know who will need your voice. Speak when you're afraid, speak when your words are unpopular, speak when people boo you and throw things at you, speak when people are silent in the wake of your words. Someone is always listening for your words. And by that, he didn't just mean my words per se, he meant that all of us need to figure out a way to speak our truths, to speak from some true place with true things that we know and offer them out to the world, that there's something wrong with squandering that resource, there's something wrong with hoarding who you are, that we're not in communion, we're not in society if we don't share who we are and speak our truths. And when I started paying attention to his saying that to me, it was when I would start to speak truths to silence and when I knew I was afraid and when I thought those words had dropped like lead and hadn't been successful. Well, you're not a shiny penny, you're not just a pretty thing, he'd say. You don't speak for people to clap for you. You don't speak because it makes you smile, you speak because you have something to offer from within yourself. So sit with the discomfort. And here, I'm speaking, he didn't say this, this is how I interpreted what he said. Sit with the discomfort of not necessarily knowing in the moment that you've given something that's been received because there's a principle of generosity in the world with the self and the truth and the word. And that is who we are and that is how we live and that's how people need to live if we're to be human, if we are to be what Sonia Sanchez says, walking upright with each other like human beings. So speaking the truth, finding the truth, saying the truth when you don't know who is listening and walking on the razor's edge. Sometimes speaking feels like being on the precipice. It feels like walking the razor's edge, that feeling in the pit of the stomach that comes before you speak, when you're anxious, when you're nervous, when you don't know what will happen to it. Catastrophe is a moment when we know that we've been brought to the razor's edge. And sometimes the thing that you think is the terrifying thing, you, the thing you can't do, the thing that seems to be the most terrifying 
truth to speak or live in or live through or come to is actually, at the end, not the most terrifying thing at all. And those are some of the surprises that come to us in this life. So in my very, very, very beloved, most beloved, most precious person, my husband, my love, my life, my fikre, my beauty, my man who I met and decided to marry in a week, really decided to marry in a day. We told no one we were crazy. But we went on and we got married because a psychic told me I was going to meet a man who I would marry. I had a broken heart and I said, no, no, uh, I'm not meeting anyone. I'm going to a monastery or a nunnery. I'm, I'm closing the shop. I'm off. It's over. And the psychic named Reggie from Brooklyn, New York, it's a true story. It's a true story. So Reggie, the psychic of Brooklyn, New York said, no, girl, no, 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 no. He's coming and you better get ready. He said, you better go home and shave your legs <laughs> because the man is coming. And again, I said, no, the man is not coming. And he said, and get ready, the baby's coming too. And I said, no, no baby, no man, no nothing. And he said, all I can say is get ready. And then I went home and the next day I looked up and there was a man who stirred me inside in a way that I had never experienced before. And he was my love and he was my life. His name was Fikre Gebreyesus. Fikre Mariam Gebreyesus. That name means lover of Mary, servant of Jesus. Fikre Mariam Gebreyesus, known as Fikre. Fikre meant love, means love. He came from Eritrea in East Africa. He came to the United States as a refugee. He was my refugee, and that's another story. He came from a war. He came from a three decades war. He came from Mangustu Haile Mariam's red terror. He came from a brother fallen in war. He came because when he ran away from home at the age of 16 to join the war, his fierce, fierce mother went to the border on foot and dragged his ass back and said, you are out. I'm not losing another one. And so on foot with his cousin, he left to Sudan, to Italy, to Germany, to the United States, to New Haven, Connecticut. He survived all of that. He worked in restaurants. He worked at a place that uh, he called Beefsteak Charles, which we might know as Beefsteak Charlie's in New Haven, Connecticut, always Three jobs at least, working, working, building, a chef, an artist, working, building, making a life in the new place. Having survived soldiers breaking into his house, having survived killing fields, having survived going to his school the day after he wrote a story at the age of 12 and recited it in Italian. He was educated by Italian nuns in that colonial place. And the teacher said, Bambini, one among you will become a writer. One among you has a voice. One among you is an artist. He never felt more pride. He went home. He told his mother. He told his father. He recited his story in Italian. He got ready for school the next day. He went back to school, and the school was padlocked shut. The red terror. The children were gone. The teachers were gone. There was no more school. 
And so this person came and survived all of that, came out of that razor's edge, came, survived, made a life, met me, found love, had children, made a home. And that's where one part of the story ends, the most beautiful part of the story. I thought that the story about the razor's edge would begin three days after his 50th birthday when my beautiful Fikre dropped dead of a heart attack. These things happen, they happen, they happen. They happen to 50-year-olds three days after their birthday. They happen to black men too much. They happen to healthy people or seemingly healthy. They happen on the treadmill like it happened with us. It happens at home. People die. People die every day. People die in worse circumstances. People suffer and die. We lose people. This we know. But I did not imagine that my Fikre would go and that my 12-year-old boy would find him and that I would then come and that my 13-year-old boy would then come. And I did not imagine at that edge of the razor that I would sit with my children with my husband, who I later was told was dead before he hit the ground, but whose soul was still in his body. I knew that it was still in his body. I never would have imagined what prepared me to sit with my children in that moment and say, we will suffer, but we will survive. You will suffer, but you will survive. That was not the razor's edge. That was not the precipice that it might have been. Somehow something told me, was it my parents? Was it Fikre? Was it the fact of these children that I had to every day just keep walking and not go to the razor's edge? not go over the edge, that these children had to be, as my grandmother would say, not raised but reared. These children had to be brought up. These children had to be brought to manhood. There was no other choice. There was no fluffy bed. There was no other choice. And so that is what we did in the most beautiful way. But here was the surprise among so many surprises. The razor's edge was finding one day, about a month after he died, that there were words that I did not know what was happening, not what I was feeling, but I did not know what was happening unless I put it to words, unless I picked up a pencil and wrote words down. That my hand and the pencil on the paper on the table was the grounding with my feet on the earth, having lain on the earth in yogic repose, saying the earth will not let me fall. Saying that to believe it, lying on the ground, the earth will not let me fall, the earth will hold me. And so, with my feet on the ground, writing the most physical act it had ever been, was the way I knew what was happening to me. And so I kept doing it. And so I kept writing, not for anything other than being alive. And then when someone who has become so beloved and dear to me 
said, perhaps you're writing a book, what do you think? And I said, I don't do that, I write other books. I don't put my business in the street. I don't talk about myself. Yes, I write poems, but poems are artifice. Poems are beautiful, gorgeous, gilded cages with feelings inside. Poems are lovely, lovely things that can have first persons in them, but aren't the me, me, the actual me, the me with kids, the kids with their names in the book, the mom and the dad with their names in the book, the man with his name in the book, the man's body unclothed in the book. I don't do that. But apparently I did do that. And apparently, word after word after word, I did that. And, you know, I always thought it a little bit pretentious to say that I was called to write anything. I thought that was, uh, as a friend of mine says, a bit too much perfume. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, I was loved to the core by the most remarkable human being who ever walked this earth. He gave me something, he came through the fire, he left me with something. I am a writer, I am an artist. God gave me words. God gave me a voice. And so to hold it in would be to squander it. And so I wrote a book, one syllable, one word, one letter after another, after another, after another. And this is a piece. Simon is my son, my second son. We love Jimmy Scott's version of the David Byrne song, Heaven. Heaven is a place, maybe you know this song, where nothing ever happens. These days I picture heaven populated by the umber angels Ficre painted in abundance, but that seems too fanciful. I never truly believed in heaven and cannot manufacture it. Little Jimmy Scott's plaintiveness seems right when he sings, nothing ever happens. How better to describe the infinite solitude of the afterlife? When this kiss is over, it will start again. It will not be any different. It will be exactly the same, he sings. Each kiss is fixed. It is the same long kiss, but it will never change. That is the comfort, and that is the heartbreak. One night at bedtime, Simon asks if I want to come with him to visit Ficre in heaven. Yes, I say, and lie down on his bed. First you close your eyes, he says, and ride the clear glass elevator. Up we go. What do you see, I ask? God is sitting at the gate, he answers. What does God look like, I ask? Like God, mama, he says. Now we go where daddy is. He has two rooms, Simon says, one room with a single bed and his books and another where he paints. The painting room is vast. He can look out any window he wants and paint. That room has four views, our backyard, the dock he painted in Maine, Asmara, and New Mexico. New Mexico, I ask. Yes, Simon says, the volcano crater with the magic grass. Ah, yes, I say, the caldera, where we saw the gophers and the jackrabbits and the elk running across, and Daddy called it the veldt. Yes, do you see it? 
and I do see it. The light is perfect for painting. His bed in heaven is a single bed. Okay, it's time to go now, Simon says, so down we go. You can come with me anytime, he says. Thank you, my darling. I don't think you can find it by yourself yet, he says, but one day you will. Thank you. Elizabeth Alexander, thank you. Now our final speaker tonight is a memoirist who works for UNESCO, and most importantly, he is a shepherd up in the Lake District of Northern England. He's written a best-selling memoir called The Shepherd's Life, and his new book is called The Shepherd's View, which is a book of photographs and further writings on the life of the shepherd, James Rebanks. And he has written, maybe people will value my book in years to come, but I'm not too worried about that. For me, the hope is that someone stands on my fell with a flock of Herdwick sheep and feels the love I feel for this place. There are some things bigger than a man's life. James Rebanks. Good evening. Thank, thank you for having me. Um, as has been mentioned, I'm a shepherd. Some of the more observant among you will notice that I haven't brought any sheep with me. Some of you might even be doubting whether I'm a real shepherd, because if you turn up without sheep, it's a bit like Little Bo Peep. People, people don't believe you, they're really a shepherd, but I really am. And um, this is my first time in America. Um, yeah. I'm a little alarmed that you get a round of applause just for coming. Um, uh, but thank you. Um, I've been walking around sort of Manhattan for the last day and a half trying to get my head around it because I live in a really rural place. In fact, could we have a slide? Thank you. And this is where I live. So it's hard to think of anywhere on the planet, apart from maybe some of the Chinese cities that are further away uh, in every possible way from my life than, than this place. And um, yesterday when I got back to my hotel, I picked up Madeline's book and she speaks about two of her characters uh, going around New York, and she said they were like a blade of grass in a world of fish. So I wrote a book about being the person left on the land when everybody else disappeared from sort of grandparent to father or mother to daughter and son. And uh, I wanted to write the book about the guy that stays behind. And, and my family's experts on staying behind. When I went to university, I studied American history. I have a, I have a master's in modern American history, but I've never been here. How fantastic <laughs> is that? So, uh, so, yeah, so, so I'm here. And, uh, but when I was reading about American history, um, I kept coming across this thing, this belief that Americans had that in many ways uh, they were the brave, the entrepreneurial, the risk-takers, the people that got on boats, that traveled across the world, they came and started new lives, they did amazing things. And as I was reading that, I was feeling slightly embarrassed because my family have never been anywhere in recorded history. I kid you not. Um, <laughs> My family have lived in exactly the same place for uh, 600 years. So 600 years ago, we lived in the neighboring parish, which is within sight of where I live now. <laughs> so you can pity me. Maybe it's a lack of imagination or something like that. But uh, we like to put it down to something else, which is what I wrote a book about, which is love of place and a sort of deep-rooted deep sense of identity that's, that's located in a landscape. Um, 
And what I wanted to talk about, I wanted to talk about a very different kind of razor's edge. Um, and the razor's edge is on your table. So, um, you all at tonight? Most of you at tonight? Do you know who... Let's say it's meat. Let's just roll with this. Um, if it's meat, do you know who reared the meat? You know the guy that farmed it for you? Do you know whether he was good to the animals or bad to the animals? Do you know whether he farmed in a way that was environmentally responsible, that was good for rivers, insects, bees? You don't know any of that, do you? Um, and, and truth is, from the other side of the fence, I don't know any of the people that eat my meat. The whole thing is very disconnected now. So uh, the great thing about modern life is we build these amazing cities and it, we fill them full of creative entrepreneurial people that can do amazing things. They can get on with being IT engineers, musicians, whatever it is, because they don't have to worry about the next meals coming from. So I think the cities are good. But something fundamental is sort of broken down in our relationship with food. And I wrote about that through a story about my family. Um, I live in this amazing landscape. Put your hands up if you've been to the Lake District. It, it's, oh wow, this is easy tonight. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, this is good. It's probably the most written about landscape in the English language. So everybody who's anybody in English li literature wrote about this landscape, particularly Wordsworth. He wrote his, I wandered lonely as a cloud. Um, and those words were written about a mile from where I live, over the hill. And this is a, it's a farming landscape, a pastoral landscape. It's a pastoral dream in the English imagination. When English people dream of the countryside, they dream of this place. Um, so I grew up in this landscape. I grew up in a quite working class rural family. Um, my dad had worked on the farm. He'd worked in a quarry for a little bit. Um, my grandfather had worked on the farm his whole life. Neither of them are particularly literate. There weren't books in my house until my mum came. Uh, by the way, my mum, uh, I don't know what my mum married my dad for, or maybe I have, you know, it's quite, sometimes you look at your parents and you think, how the hell did they get together? Well, um, uh, I'm glad they did, obviously I wouldn't be here, but my mum was uh, from a different kind of family. She was from two, mi uh, two miles, two hours down the road uh, in industrial Lancashire, which is the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. So um, the two sides of England meet in me, if you like. My mother's from the, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, and my fa father's family are, are shepherds in the most pastoral, beautiful place in England. And um, the, the coming together of those two things is why my landscape really matters. That's why you've all been, that's why people think it's important, because it was the first place in the world where industry, commerce, dark satanic mills, bumped up against somewhere that people thought was beautiful. And it was the first place where people formulated arguments about protecting things in the public interest. And, um, and that was amazing and radical at the time. The first time anybody said, it's sort of mine because it's beautiful. Um, so this is the landscape in which that other kind of belonging, which we all accept now, emerged. And when I was growing up, my family were going broke. There were small farmers, small traditional farmers. And when I was growing up, we were kind of on the wrong side of history. Um, the, we were going broke, there wasn't enough money around, and I thought maybe I was going to be like the last person in my family that would ever be a shepherd. The farm was disappearing, and I had to make a decision, that what, what do we do about that? And in the book that I wrote, The Shepherd's Life, I tell the story of um, when I went to school, I hated it. I thought it was nothing to do with me. I hated books. I thought books were nothing to do with me. And then I had this sort of revelatory experience once I'd left school. I left school when I was 15. I worked on the farm as a laborer. I got, the grant, got paid by my father the grand sum of 40 pounds a week, which makes me sound like Charles Dickens is one of the characters. And um, uh, I thought we were beat. 
but over the years, I've learned something else, which is I don't want to give up. I think when we lose a connection to the land, we lose something really, really important. Uh, I think when we don't know where our food comes from, we're, we're putting ourselves in a vulnerable position. We're putting ourselves on the razor's edge. And I wrote this book uh, to try and explain what it was like to be on a, a family farm in the northwest of England. Um, I wanted to write the book 20 years ago, but I'm so incompetent as an author, it took me about 20 years to work out how you get a book published. Um, so when, when I started writing the book, I was going to write a book. In my head, this book was going to be like The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway, except sort of move, move the marlin out of the way and bring the sheep in. It, it was... Um, it, was uh, it, it really was. It would have been a great book as well. But um, uh, So... That was the book I set off to write 20 years ago. And uh, about two years ago, um, I sort of freaky things happened. So I started doing a Twitter account. Who does Twitter? You on Twitter? Okay. Um, so I started telling people what happened on my farm anonymously. And people seemed to love it. I started having this conversation with loads of people. I now, I now have 85,000 people follow my life on the farm every day. Um, um, then publishers and agents and all these crazy people in the publishing world, no offense to that table over there, um, they uh, started ringing me up saying, can you write a book? Which, and I wanted to punch their lights out, to be honest, because for 20 years I, I had two chapters of a book in a drawer, which I'd, I'd, I'd written, and life kept getting in the way. You know, you have kids, you've got a mortgage, you've got three jobs, you're trying to juggle this farm thing, you've got this cranky dad who you can't get on with. And... Um, uh, and then somebody, somebody gives you the green light and says, write this book. And I got to do it. And the truth is, it was still going to be the old man in the sea, but without a marlin and a ship, uh, with sheep instead. And then something happened to me, which sadly isn't funny in any way, shape or form. My father got cancer, and uh, I knew he was going to die. And uh, my book completely changed when I was writing it. From being a book celebrating my, the sort of nobility of my grandfather and my boyhood love of him, it became a book about how much I loved my father and how much I respected my father. And I, I wrote in the book um, that the true history of our landscape was the history of the nobodies, the people you never heard of that make this city work outside, the people that drive taxis and all that sort of stuff. But I wanted to write about the rural version of that, um, the people that get up in the morning, they do the work, they look after the sheep, they put the walls up, they do all the things that make that landscape beautiful. And uh, I've been incredibly, incredibly blessed because I knew that I could just about finish this book and get it published before my dad died. And there was a very strong chance he'd get a chance to read it. And I, I wrote a very long letter. The book, the book is really a letter to my dad telling him why I loved and respected what he did and what his life was about. And he read it three weeks before he died. And uh, I actually feel incredibly privileged about that. But there is a lighter side to this in that when I said, Dad, what do you think of my book? He said, I thought you'd have written this 15 years ago. Um, to which I wanted to like strangle him because I'd been working for him for nothing for 15 years. That was my writing time. Yeah. Um, uh, so I gave up. I thought he's not going to say anything nice to me. That's not the kind of father and son that we are. So my, I went to see my mum and I said, what did, my, what did dad think of the book? And she said he cried all the way through it when he was reading it, um, which is very touching. I'm going to cry myself. Um, she said it was all about his life and every page of it made him cry. Sorry. Um, and then my sister tried. So my sister went in and she sat with my dad and she said, what do you think of the book, dad? And um, he looked at her and he said, I'm really thrown by it because I come out of this book as a fucking legend. <laughs> I feel incredibly blessed because I got to write that letter to my dad. And 
It's lovely when writers that you admire on the world say lovely things about your book it's, and you get critical acclaim, that's lovely. It's lovely when you sell loads of copies and you're the guy that looks out and has a bestseller around the world and in blah, blah, blah languages. Um, but that doesn't amount to a hill of beans compared to telling your dad that you love him and him knowing exactly what you had to say. Um, I'm going to say thank you very much and good night. And that's a wrap on our show. Many thanks to our authors, Madeleine Chien, Elizabeth Alexander and James Rebanks. Please join us next time when a new group of storytellers take the stage. To learn more about House of Speakeasy and what we do as a non-profit, visit our website at houseofspeakeasy.org. And if you're in the New York area, please join us at one of our live shows at Joe's Pub at the Public Theatre. I'm Amanda Foreman. And I'm Lucas Whitman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>